This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Overcomers, God's Vision for You to Thrive in an Age of Anxiety and Outrage, written and narrated by pastor and best-selling author Matt Chandler, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church. This is Pass the Mic. Greetings and God bless. Welcome to another episode of Pass the Mic, Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church, powered by the Reformed African American Network. I'm your host, Tyler Burns. You can follow me on Twitter at Burns23. We got Jamar Tisby in the building, too. What's going on, Jamar? Same old, same old, man. We are uh, rounding out finally the end of the school year although we have an extended school year so we have students in the building till june 15th which is like full two and a half weeks past everybody else so everybody's kind of antsy including the adults and uh it's funny because i've been reading through uh colossians and in chapter one verse Mm -hmm. 11 it says may you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy and those two words with joy just struck me, right? Like it's is one thing to sort of grit your teeth and have endurance and patience and just kind of get to where you're going. But it's a whole other thing to do that with joy. It is like, ah, that is that is supernatural, which is why I believe it says uh, according to his glorious might, because it's definitely uh, not our strength that will help us enduring and patient with joy. And and what I'm going through is, is small potatoes compared to what a lot of Christians are going through. Um, but, but that's just an interesting, um, a challenging way to think about patience and endurance is having it with joy. Yeah. It reminds me of the Acts 20 passage where Paul says, you know, I just want to finish my course with joy, you yeah. know, like that, yeah. just that whole mentality of doing difficult things and going through, um, even ordinary things that would just annoy us or make us feel empty um, with a joyful attitude. Um, that's how Christ did. Um, that's how Christ was, you know, in his life on earth. And, and man, that's, a, that's just a great reminder for us. And I think sometimes we can just get, get overwhelmed by mundane things yes. and think that they don't matter. And, and especially when you consider Hey, you're doing a podcast, you're, you're um, speaking, you're, you're preaching and teaching, and then you know you have to deal with a conflict in a classroom or you have to deal with um, a teacher-parent relation. It's like, what is that, is that as, you know, in our minds we say, is that as important as this podcast or is that as important as you know, speaking or is that as important as whatever? But mm-hmm. in, in the grand scheme of things, in the kingdom of God, it absolutely is, you know? Yeah, yeah. Speaking of which, we've got to have like a, a faith and work dialogue about sort of the importance of, you know, as you mentioned, what, mm-hmm. what we could say the mundane. Mundane, not as in unimportant, but as in common, very common, you know? Right. Uh, just, just getting up every morning and going to work and what is the sort of theological or spiritual significance of all that? Does it have spiritual significance? How do we think about about it as Christians, because most of us are not in full-time pastoral ministry. So what about the rest of us as we seek to live out our Christian lives and callings in, in everyday life? So we got to get that one on the docket. Maybe there's a guest, a particular guest who would be really helpful for that. If you know somebody, let us know on uh, social media or in comments or um, a message to info at randnetwork.org. Yeah. Thank you guys so much for the comments that you've already left. 
We talked about them a lot last week um, or a couple of weeks ago on the podcast. And we just really appreciate the, the feedback that you've given to us, the reviews that you leave on iTunes, your iTunes subscriptions. Also, you can download the podcast via the Satchel app. Um, which is Bo York's app, and it's phenomenal. It's great. Um, we encourage you to do that. And we encourage you to leave us a line on on social media. Um, if you're being encouraged by the podcast, if you're being blessed by some of the things that have gone forth, we hope you all enjoyed our interview with Show Baraka, long in the making. That was um, fun. And we're getting some really great feedback from it um, as far as the things that he talked about related to black nationalism and solutions within the community and the gospel and historical matters. And that was a fun interview. And so we want to continue bringing those things to you. So if you have any suggestions, any people who you think we should interview, uh, please send that over to us. You can tweet us. That's the quickest way to get in touch with us. Or you can obviously go to info at randnetwork.org. Shoot us an email as well. So Jamar, you weren't watching Golden State. You were rather watching the Roots documentary. Why right? you gonna that's put me out there right there? Why you gonna put me no, out there like that? I know. I know that's what. I know. That's Listen, what you were watching. plans had been instead in of, the works for group, me to have were, some fellowship. <laughs> I was obligated to to have some fellowship with some some uh, brothers and sisters in Christ, and so I put that relational incarnational. <laughs> ministry. Oh, uh, here we go. You here know, we go. Here we go. It happened to be that the Golden State Warriors versus Oklahoma City Thunder Game 7 was on and so that's what we watched. But but really it was about building the bonds of friendship within the body. It, it was very interesting, <laughs> right, to have that timing of you know, what someone say is black excellence in one side versus, you know, black history, <laughs> you know, yeah. like, <laughs> and being such a such a both of them being such historic moments. Um, and, and if you're not familiar, the Roots series, the Roots uh, docuseries that um, was put out um, years ago, um, starring James Earl Jones, um, has been remade and is on the History Channel, I believe it is, with, yep, some, pretty, with some pretty popular actors. And um, it's very intense. And from what I'm seeing on social media, it was kind of like the... Uh, the whiz, the whiz play that was put mm-hmm. out on NBC is just kind of becoming a, a, like a family reunion experience. Yeah, where people are tweeting about it, and I don't know how good that is because it seems like people are arguing back and forth uh, about whether or not it's a good thing. And so I think I might skip social media while I'm watching this one personally. <laughs> um, but it does seem to be a very meaningful time where people can see the reality of the slave trade um, and the reality of what slavery was like. In the very in 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 a really limited sense, I think there's so much that we don't know, but the part that we do know is being represented in brilliant cinematic cinematic capacity, in a visceral way that's affecting us emotionally and and piercing our hearts and causing us not to turn away, but to see it. And I think that makes it worth watching. You know what it reminds me of is sort of the impact that Mel Gibson's The Passion of Christ had. Um, in right. terms of making it visual, right? Now, there's all right. kinds of critiques people can can level against the movie, but one impact it, it really did have almost universally was seeing the brutality of the crucifixion and everything that led up to it made it, I think, tangible in a way that reading about it doesn't. And I think in a similar way, although vastly different, obviously, um, in a similar way, 
that that visual. I mean, it is it is hard to watch Roots, whether you're talking about the original version or this more recent one, which is airing, I think, in four consecutive nights. Last night was the first one, so you can catch it uh, multiple nights. There is something arresting about seeing uh, actual people who were involved in this, both white and black, and that is aside from all the other richness of learning the history and the context, I think that alone is a good enough reason to watch if you can bear it. And honestly, I, I have to psych myself up to see movies like this or The Butler or um, The Help or, or any of the movies that seek to tell the history. 12 Years a Slave. 12 Years a Slave, my goodness. Uh, any of these movies that seek to tell the, the history of America's racial past. I thought there was one good comment on Twitter that I'll mention was, uh, it was somebody basically saying, I hope as many white people are watching this as black people because this isn't just black history, it's American history. That's I right. that was a yeah, great point. That's very good point. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is a great opportunity. I know a lot of people would say that there are too many narratives and too many stories, too many cinematic portrayals of black slavery and black struggle yeah. and Jim Crow and the black codes and things of that nature um, and the civil rights movement and that those are kind of ad nauseum. Um, but there's there's not many portrayals of people of color as it relates to um, overwhelming success or excellence. And I think that while that is somewhat of a critique to look at and to listen to, these stories, if you interact with people and you're pursuing racial reconciliation, you come to a quick realization that these stories, um, they fade from our memory very quickly. Mm -hmm. And they need to constantly be brought up to remind us of what happened in the past. Just as we constantly have imagery and stories about other events in American history or world history, we need to do the same when it comes to, sl to the slave trade. And we need to do the same when it comes to these stories of people overcoming and going through and losing. Um, it reminds us that it wasn't that long ago. And Not as much as we ago. want to still act ongoing. like it was, it, it's still ongoing. Right. And so our friend uh, Eugene Scott, who's a, a reporter for CNN and just we've interacted some uh, over Rand, he, he put out a tweet that I think speaks to your point. And he says, I shouldn't be, but I'm still shocked by how often after sharing that I've been discriminated against, I'm asked to prove that it happened. Mm, wow. I think that in, in itself is a reason for retelling these kinds of stories is because we as people of color are still having to convince folks that this is still happening today and we make it more understandable that it's still happening today if we understand what has taken place yesterday. You know what I mean? And so like you're saying that it, it, we we are forgetful, especially when it comes to a, a painful past, especially if you're in the majority. Um, it, it just tends to be either outright denied or minimized or forgotten altogether. And so it, it, I think you do need both. We do need stories of black excellence, black folks achieving so that that the narrative we pass on and that, that we absorb ourselves and that we pass on to subsequent generations isn't one simply of oppression and marginalization, but mm -hmm. that we have overcome in some significant ways and we can celebrate. But I, I, I also want to avoid a, a strict dichotomy between the two because most sure. of the historiography around slavery has focused on resistance. And so right. even in 
a movie like Roots, you see all the ways that people of African descent are striving to surpass and overcome their circumstances. You see all the ways they're fighting uh, for their humanity and for their dignity. And so struggle has always been, struggle for progress, I should say, has always been part of the black experience in the United States. And But, but you can't really extricate that from the oppression and marginalization we have and still do face in many ways. And so this is a perfect segue into our topic for today, or one of our topics for today, depending on how much time we have. And that is of a young lady who in, um, I believe it was New York. Um, I'm not exactly sure where this was, but there's, yeah, I think it was Staten, Staten Island. A young, a young lady named Crystal Lake um, wore a hat to her job, Home Depot, and it said America was never great, basically countering the slogan, which we have to admit now is actually a brilliant marketing slogan as much as we hate to say that but it was yeah. a brilliant marketing slogan yeah. um by the donald trump campaign which is make america great again and so she wore this hat someone took a picture of it put posted on social media um and it went viral very quickly and she actually made a comment she said that people were actually threatening to kill me over a hat i couldn't believe it i was calling my best friend and i was like how is that how, how is this happening it's just a hat now she did say that she didn't take these threats seriously because she said they were internet trolls, et cetera. But then she says, I think I'm hitting them with their own medicine, she said, of, of Trump supporters. My whole thing was I like being different. Uh, now, she wore this hat. It gained a lot of attention from people. And it poked at something that I think is consistently being poked at, which is this idea that America is the greatest nation of all time this kind of pseudo-American exceptionalism or flat-out American exceptionalism, which says we need to go back to our glory days. you know. And I think you and others have said, for us, we look at that and say, well, how far back are we talking? Um, because don't go too far back. If you're talking about maybe 20 years ago, okay. Um, 60, 70, 80 years ago, we have a problem um, because it wasn't great for everyone. Mm -hmm. So what were your thoughts when you saw this hat, particularly in a work setting, and did you agree with it? Did you say, well, it kind of depends? What were your thoughts? <laughs> I agree with the sentiment. Uh, America was never great in a sense, right? Like, I, I'm not bashing the United States just as a blanket statement. There are some great things about living in the United States and being a citizen here. Um, I do have freedoms that people in other countries wouldn't even reasonably reasonably be able to dream up. There is wealth in this nation that is literally jaw-dropping to people who live elsewhere, even though that wealth is not evenly distributed. Uh, there are wonderful things about the United States. So it's not that portions of America or the United States or things about America aren't great. But when the sentiment, the original sentiment, make America great again, for me, as an African-American, the, the implication seems to be make America great again, but for whom? Because that's where it comes in that America was never that great in terms of civil rights in particular for people of color and particularly uh, people of African descent. And so, you know, I, I, I don't like that phrase. 
at all because it seems to be to me if i'm just speak honestly uh not hatefully but honestly it seems to be make america great again for white people particularly white males and mm. give us back everything that we once had whatever however you define that uh but if you do that, if you go to, it seems to be this golden era is like the 1950s, leave it to beaver kind of environment. If you go back to that, things were not great for women. Things were not great for any sort of ethnic minority. Things were not great in terms of the image of God and all kinds of people who didn't fit basically a white Western European male mold. Um, so that's that's kind of all of my underlying thoughts on the original phrase. Now, the wisdom of we wearing that hat to work, you know, <laughs> you're going to get commentary, but for it to explode like this, I don't think anyone could have reasonably predicted. What do you think? Yeah, I think if if, if someone has, is asking me the question, was America ever great? Um, I would say yes and no. Um, and, and I think in many ways we still are great. I think what the sentiment is, is America has never been great for everyone, right? Mm -hmm. um, like you were saying, America has never been universally great for all people who live there, um, regardless of um, you know ethnicity or, or creed or gender or what have you. So because of that, I think, again, this goes back to the, to the root of the problem, which is that many Americans, and particularly American Christians, just cannot handle prophetic rebuke. Like we just cannot Ooh. handle rebuke from people of color. Mm. So, so when we say things, it is perceived as a personal assault. Wow! And it, it makes us feel that we shouldn't look at, at at America without thankfulness for what the Lord has been able to do here. But we should also look honestly in a way that doesn't have to revise the history that we know exists. We read about it. We've seen it. There are people who speak on it. And it's okay for us to say, you know, America has not always done the right thing. And if if we believe America has always done the right thing, then we're idolizing, you know, American society. And, and you hear it all the time, right? America is supposed to be this um, shining light on a hill, you know, the city on a hill, this shining light. And it, it, it makes me very uncomfortable because what it does is it kind of has this revisionist tendency. And this is actually how I was taught history. I was taught history that America made the right decisions in this situation and mm -hmm, that situation. Mm -hmm. and, and it was sanitized. It was a sanitized history of human beings who are very complicated and who, when they have power, do things that they regret. Uh, so were, was America great in its, in its invention and ingenuity in some ways? Absolutely. Was Amer did America railroad and steamroll, uh, steamroll other people and commit heinous acts <laughs> for the furthering of that ingenuity? Yes. Um, both can exist at the same time. And I think what we have to be, be honest about is sometimes prophetic rebuke will come from places that we don't like to hear it. It's okay to receive that. You know, that's a big thing, right? How do we, how do we receive hard words from people of color? You know, how do we receive yeah. hard words from, from people who would say, that wasn't my experience. That's and so good. I think there's always a rush to sanitize, right? Well, 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 well what, what you mean is you didn't have, like one, one person said, who I won't mention his name, but he said, it's clear this person probably never had love growing up, right? <laughs> she probably has, I'm like, wait, what? Wow, that's a big leap. Yeah, how do you know her 
and this is a, a very famous person, a very famous Christian man, is that how do you know her, her life story based upon her perception of America? And she even said, hey, I don't hate America. I'm not anti-America, but I'm honest about the country in which I live in, you know, and how we receive that and how we perceive that sometimes is a, a key in our ongoing pursuit of racial reconciliation. So let me ask you this, Jamar. You see this. It's going to catch your attention if you see this in person, right? Yep. Um, what is the wisdom, and you touched on it, what is the wisdom of making this statement? No, we talk about the content of the statement, but let's talk about the approach of how the statement was made. What's the wisdom of this? Well, this is one of the great things about America. People have freedom to make choices like these. And look, you just have to be willing to accept the consequences. That's all there is to it. Now, again, I don't think anybody could have predicted, especially in the age of social media, I guess that has to factor in, right? Like, you've got to think about how the internet will do you and it will, it will rake you over the coals if it disapproves. And so I don't think I would have thought of that if I was like, if I was so disturbed by this phrase, make America great again, that I would go out, buy a hat and wear it to work. I don't think I'd be thinking that far ahead. Nevertheless, um, I don't, there are going to be consequences, but it shows, it shows, I'm not saying she deserves what she got at all. It's, it, it, mm-hmm. it's the internet that it's always overboard. And some of what came out was really scary, really frightening. I mean, she's getting death threats over this. And she says she didn't, you know, take it seriously because, like you said, it's it's the Internet. But still, that's, yeah, that's, still serious. that's way, 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 way beyond. So it gets to the point. I think the bigger matter is can we disagree ideologically and not hate each other? Uh, I mean, this 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 is this is just a microcosm of our political climate right now, where there seems to be much less uh, bipartisan kind of endeavors. There, there's much less of saying, "Well, the other side has a point. I disagree about how we might get there, but we agree on you know the principle, this, that, right. and the other." And so, I think this is sort of a social and a cultural way of those kinds of politics still playing out. Well, I disagree with what this young lady says that America was never great. I think America was great, and since we disagree, I'm going to bash her into the ground, ground her, grind her under my boot, and make sure she and everybody else who thinks like her never utters a word again. And it's happening now, on both sides, on all sides. Absolutely. Now, let me just point out that I'm talking about people who would claim to be Christians. Saying go back to Africa. Oh my goodness! I, I mean, I'm, I'm serious. Yeah, I'm serious. We'll just go go live in an African country and see if she's she's complaining. Well, I, w- I want to hear your thoughts about this, but my one thought is this: if we in the church don't discipline racism like we do adultery or stealing or fornication okay. or whatever it might be, we will never have Christians or a church that is chastened enough to 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 refrain from these kinds of statements and still call themselves believers. And I'm not saying they aren't believers, but if we don't treat racism as a sin, which means it must be disciplined, then we should. Be surprised when people make comments like this. Absolutely, I a hundred percent agree with you. And and I think when we see that, you know, it does raise. And the reason I brought this to you as as far as the wisdom of this approach is, it does raise questions about how we approach the issue of racism in the church and what we say. Because I think immediately following Ferguson, there was a groundswell of Christians of color who 
kind of woke up to the reality, and myself included, woke up to the stark reality of racial injustice being still present in systemic ways. Um, so regardless of how you feel about the case and what actually happened, um, it definitely touched nerves. And then when you're talking about social media, it caused people to become much more emboldened to push for justice, to push for reconciliation. And so the approach was so jarring because this hadn't been an ongoing conversation. Well, since basically Trayvon Martin, it hadn't been an ongoing conversation. So then there becomes a proliferation of podcasts and other things and and uh, Facebook statuses and social media conversations and in-person panels and discussion forums that really put this issue front and center. And a lot of people were saying, this is the wrong way to approach this issue. And to be honest with you, I don't know the right way to approach this <laughs> issue if it's not to put the issue in front of people's faces, to force them to have to see that this is still an issue. And I think on one side, I say as a, as a worker and as an employee, be careful about bringing that stuff to work. On another side, I say the boldness of her statement <laughs> to ask for forgiveness rather than permission, right? Mm -hmm. The boldness of her statement, which would say, I'm going to put it in front of people's faces to where they cannot see it because I believe so passionately, they cannot um, ignore it because I believe so passionately about this issue is part of the prophetic nature of protest, which is part of the prophetic nature. And I think, again, the church doesn't always understand and perceive that correctly. Yeah. So it makes it seem as though it's an attack or it's petty, or it's what have you, when in reality, there's a historical context to this. What? And I think when we talk about protests, or when we talk about even any sort of subversive activity, like institutional, like subvers subverting the status quo, I think it's important for us to remember that there's not just historical, but some biblical elements as well. Mm. And I'm not saying she was being biblical here, but mm -hmm. there are some biblical elements as well of subverting institutions that would be anti-biblical or, or would be against the nature and knowledge of, of who God is and what he has called us to do. So I, I mean, think that's an important element to consider. I think bringing it down to just a very personal level, one, one of the diagnostic questions Tim Keller gives about how to identify your idols. He's always talking about idolatry and anything um, other than God that we put in the place of God as ultimate is an idol. And so one of the diagnostic questions he talks about is, what makes you the most upset? What if people attack it or criticize it evokes the strongest reaction from you? And that's a good sign that it might be an idol or the idol in your life because you will so, so fiercely defend and protect it. I think at the very least, Christians ought to think about why race evokes such a powerful uh, negative, visceral reaction, especially among those in the majority, because might that be a clue that we have an idol in this area, an idol of race, an idol of dominance of one people group over another, or the centrality of one people group uh, uh, over and opposed others. I think at the very least, that should give us pause, because you're talking about how do we receive prophetic critique. And then I think you also hit on another critical matter, which is why it, which is it's difficult for folks to receive that from people of color and i think one of the reasons maybe the main reason for that it goes back to this idea of of being a neighbor 
And the reality is that in the United States, because of how race and economics has played out, we're not neighbors with people who are very different from us mm. quite often. We're, we are separated geographically, educationally, socially, economically, you name it. Therefore, it becomes very easy to caricature other people, whether that's their richer than you or poorer than you, they're lighter than you or they're right. darker than you. Right. It becomes very easy to make people two-dimensional. And when that happens, you get mistakes and flaws on all sides, whether it's on the prophetic critique side, which would blanket everybody who's part of this sort of um, centralized and, and empowered group as the villains, as as the oppressor, whether it's on the side of the margin or, or if you are uh, those folks who who are in the dominant social position, whether you blanket, you know, people who would wear a, America was never great again hat, whether you would make all kinds of assumption about this person, especially when when color comes into play, when we don't know each other as neighbors, mm-hmm. we cannot exhibit love for one another, whether in public discourse or personal interaction. And so I think so, that's a huge issue. So when we're talking about idols, right? Okay, there was another story that recently happened uh, <laughs> that may have exposed some other idols yeah. in a much different sense. My goodness, the story of the young boy falling into the zoo enclosure at the Cincinnati Zoo um, and basically being surrounded by this 400-pound gorilla um, named Harambe. And okay, I saw a part of this video. I'm not going to recommend people go see the video. It was pretty jarring yeah. and surreal to see this 400-pound gorilla basically dragging this young boy through the water, um, I guess what seemed to be protecting him, swinging him or you know, holding him or I don't know what. <laughs> mm-hmm. Did you see this video? I did. Know? I did. It was disturbing. And you know, fair warning to anybody who's listening and hasn't seen it. Yeah, absolutely. So what what ends up happening is the Cincinnati Zoo um, jumps into action very quickly and shoots and kills the gorilla. Now, this is, uh, from what I understand, an endangered species of gorilla. Mm-hmm. Um, it was very well liked within the Cincinnati Zoo community. And a lot of people came to its defense saying that it was really the parent's fault. Um, for letting the child, the four-year-old, get into a place where it could fall into the where he could fall into the enclosure in the first place, and so now there's justice for Harambe hashtags, and there's people who are signing petitions that the parents should be punished, and there's this huge conversation now about the value of animal life versus the value of human life and young human life. What did it make you think when you found out that they had to to put the gorilla down? And did, how did you feel after you found that out after seeing the video? So it's always complicated in a sense, right? Now, it's not complicated on, on the level of human life versus animal life, boy's life versus gorilla's life. Right. There's, 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 no, there's no equivocation about that for a Christian. You, you, you preserve the human's life, um, even though it may cost the life of another living being, it's not a being made in the image and likeness of God, as per Genesis one twenty six right. through twenty eight. Now, but if you look at the video at first, I mean, it doesn't seem that the gorilla is being all that violent at first, and so it, it was sort of like a preventative killing in the sense that 
no one was quite sure what the gorilla's intent was. He wasn't. Mm. He he did have the boy physically in its grip. I mean, that by itself, especially if that's your child, boom, gorilla's done. Uh, like <laughs> no, you absolutely. don't need to think too much about that. Uh, but for folks, you know, looking at the video, have some personal separation from it. You're not quite sure is the gorilla trying to you know protect him? He's going to be gentle, and and it's not that the boy doesn't need to get out of there. He's not in danger. But is it is it does it require a lethal response? Is I think what what a lot of people are debating. Well, you could right. have tranquilized or you could have had some other way to preserve the gorilla's life and the boy's life. I don't. I hope nobody's saying the boy should have died instead of the gorilla necessarily or at least is not serious about that. No, they've 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 said that. They've yeah, said it. Yeah, it's the internet. It. Thanks, internet. I've, I've heard. Here's what I've heard is is whenever people would say, "Well, we should protect the boy's life," and people would say, "Who are you to decide whose oh, life gosh. is more important?" Okay. And yeah, I've, I've so, seen that. So, so talk about that. Why 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 would why would Christians kind of react so strongly to that? Well, I, it goes back to the image of God, right? It goes back to the image of God. Um, giving all human beings, according to Genesis 1, dignity, um, and dignity that is on a different level than other living beings within our ecosystem. And so would we say that we dis- we indiscriminately don't care about other living beings or animals? No. I mean, we've seen some pretty high-profile situations, um, thinking about the Michael Vick situation and others, where wow, yeah. any sort of animal cruelty has led to some very strict and stringent consequences and cost him a lot of money and and a lot of uh, opportunity within his sphere. So, and and from my perspective, uh, a lot of people even said at that point, "Well, it's just some dogs." But that's not, I don't think, a biblical ethic. You know, I don't. I think we still are called to value creation, um, and the laws tell us what we're supposed to do in that area. So. I definitely don't think it's just we disregard all other other life that is in our ecosystem, but human life carries with it value and dignity and worth because we are created in the image of God and because we have a soul and because there is an afterlife for us definitively, uh, it carries with it this this weight and this value that should cause us to say on the tier, if we're having to choose here, while I don't want to have to eliminate a gorilla's life, especially an endangered one, especially one that means so much to a zoo community, um, and especially one that shows the creativity of a, a, an awesome creator God, um, while I, I feel for that, we still care about the child more. The child has a soul, right? And so I would say that what I'm hearing from people is mixed on whether or not they should have killed the gorilla. But here's what I am hearing almost universally is blaming of the parents. Yeah. And this took particular interesting uh, undertones when we found out that the young boy was black and the parents are black, right? Um, and from what I'm understanding, the mom wasn't watching the child or something happened. I don't know what happened, but she the, got the distracted boy. by her other children or other children there. Yes, exactly. So, so there was some sort of distraction and the boy climbs under. And so what, what people said is that these are bad parents or they're careless parents, or some memes would say the gorilla is doing a better job of watching the parents mm. and the children. Mm. Um, and I kind of, you know, was taken aback just simply because of the prevailing sentiment that would say people of color and particularly black parents don't keep a, a, a strict watch on their children. They don't watch their kids. And so you think there was like a racial undertone to all this? Well, okay, here's what I'll say. I'll say that it made me think 
of some a lot of things that I've heard before regarding black parents and children mm. and the perception of how black parents protect and care for their children. And I've seen in many cases, people will say, you guys don't watch your kids. You need to get your kids. You need to watch. And it made me think, you know, when people say, oh, well, well, we don't want to hear from these idiot parents and all these other things that they were saying. I said, now, hold on. <laughs> What's going on here? You know, why are you saying it like this? Is it just because you value human life, uh, animal life in the same way that you value human life? Or is are there some other things that you're saying underlying is that you guys never take care of your kids? You guys never mm, watch your kids. I get you. And that may just be me, but it felt like to me some of those undertones were uncomfortable and kind of played into some stereotypes when people found out about the the parents' uh, ethnicity. I, I I think that's fair. <laughs> I think that's fair in the context of the United States. Um, we live in a racialized society where so much, uh, so many of our perceptions are filtered through this social construct of race, and that we can definitely attribute unfairly attribute characteristics or, or habits or patterns to people based on their skin color. And I have no doubt that for some people, whether that was implicit or explicit, uh, race played a factor in their judgment of it. Uh, at the same time, I think parent shaming is wildly out of control. It knows no color barriers. Um, I, th I think of uh, there were some recent cases in Mississippi, which is hot. I mean, hot, you know, hot. And there were some parents who left their kids in the car and they died. Mm -hmm. And and oh, some of it, I mean, the most recent case I, I can think of was um, a mom th thought she had dropped the child off at daycare. The child, she didn't. Um, I'm not sure how she missed it, but the child was still in the car. And mom went to work and left the child in the car. So he was maybe one or two years old. Obviously, child died in the heat. Um, oh, and, and, and in the midst of this utter grief that the parent has over losing a child, the internet brutally attacked her uh, and, and, and just both parents for being so neglectful. Um, and I think this is a similar case where if anything happens to a child where the parent was on guard, on duty, on watch, and something still happens, we bash the parent. And I think, right. it, I think it really comes from a deep insecurity almost all parents have about whether they're doing this right or getting it right, whether mm -hmm. how bad you're messing up your kids. And it just manifests itself in a way that we got to tear other parents down in order for us to feel good about our own parenting. Um, I think that's some of it. There's probably much more to it, right. but it's really, really tragic. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I think there's, there's also some gospel undertones, right? In the sense that, you know, you look at someone else's mistake and someone else's shame mm. and you say, I would never do that. Yep. You know what you say? You say, punish them. You know, we want, we want justice or we want vengeance or they should be punished or they should be. And some other things have been said about them. That's shocking. You know, social media is just out of control. Right. So, so people have said they should get the brunt of the punishment. Yeah. And, and so it makes us think and remember that none of us is faultless and none of us is blameless. And our culture needs a heavy dose of, of recognizing the depravity of all people in the sense that we have all fallen short. We have all made mistakes. And we have all done things that are unthinkably bad and made mistakes that could have cost someone or could have cost us very dearly. So 
when we're when we're looking at someone else whose mistake has been put front and center in in worldwide news, how do we respond? Do we respond with a, a sense of grace and mercy, which would say they're not that one mistake? You know, they're not that one um, you know distraction. I'm thankful that the child is alive. Let's move on. Or do we do we eviscerate them based upon the fact that we want to prop up our own righteousness? We want to prop up our own altruism, and we would never do that. We we're better parents. We're better people. And I think that's an element of pride that seeps into our culture, and it's very dangerous. It causes us to look at things um, in a very, uh, especially when it comes to parenting, in a very unhealthy way. And I'm not a parent yet. I know you are, Jamar. Um, and I know Bo is as well. So I pray for parents. I know how difficult it is. There's not really a manual that would say, oh, this is how you do every single thing and this is how you address every single issue. Um, I'm thankful that there are parents who who are consistently raising their children and who may make mistakes, but the grace of God covers that. Um, and, and so it, it's it's partially a tragedy. But at the same time, it's partially a reminder for us that that no one is is what they do. No one is their worst day, right? Yeah. Their identity is is somewhere else. Well, I, I think all of this, in terms of the reaction of people to the death of an animal, in light of the threat to a human being, is a Romans one type of moment. And and what I mean by that is Romans one twenty two says or twenty three twenty two and twenty three says, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. It goes on to say, uh, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And so it's, it's, it's this idea that if we don't rightly order our loves, if we don't start with God as our primary love that takes precedence over everything else, then 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 all of our loves are going to be out of whack, askew, misprioritized. And so people can honor an animal above a human being and even above God when God is not your primary love. And so this this right. this is just one example of disordered loves is, is we folks have have so taken up for an animal and it was it was the same with Cecil the lion you know it was oh, yeah. kind of yeah, a, a, a yeah this, related this is a thing. constant situation. Constant situation It's so funny that animals have the, the the sacredness of animal life for so many and especially in the public sphere has superseded the sacredness of human life. Uh, that 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 we could we could be so uh, as a as a culture opposed to an animal dying, but sort of indifferent about human beings dying, whether those are unarmed black people at the hands of law enforcement, whether that's in the womb or any place else. And I think that's a, a symptom of people denying God, worshiping the creature rather than the Creator, uh, yeah. ex- exchanging His glory for the glory of another. Man, that's that's so well put. And I think ordering our loves is something that's a constant uh, struggle for many of us in the culture. Um, what are you guys' thoughts on it? We want you. We want to hear from you. Leave some comments on the Rand Network um, page, whether it's on Facebook or randnetwork.org. We also want you um, to reach out to us again on Twitter, on social media, to uh, just give us your feedback, just to let us know some some topics that you would like for us to talk about. There have been a couple that have been mentioned within the iTunes review. There have been a couple that have been mentioned on Twitter that we are going to get to. We also have some great interviews coming up that will leave you in suspense as to who we're interviewing. Uh, but you want to subscribe to us on iTunes and also on the Satchel app as well. Um, uh, Jamar, any final thoughts? 
Uh, no, I just want to shout out Tyler Burns for being an extremely gifted co-host. Brother, we couldn't do it without you. I thank God for his gifts to you. I appreciate that, brother. <laughs> you caught me off guard. I was like, who is Tyler? No, <laughs> I'm messing. No, I really appreciate that. It is a joy and an honor to be here on Past the Mic. We also want to shout out our producer, Bo York, as well. Bo, um, Bo is consistent, and Bo, there would be no podcast without Bo York. We want you to, want you all to go and download the Satchel app. Please go do it. It's excellent. It's amazing. Um, remember to like us on Facebook as well and follow us. The show uh, Twitter handle is at underscore pass the mic. And then you can also follow Rand Network at Rand Network as well. Um, well, until next time, thank you guys for listening to Pass the Mic. And we'll see you next time on the next Pass, pass the, the Mic. mic. You've been listening to Pass the Mic, a Pottery production. To find out more about this and other shows, visit Pottery.com. That's P-O-D-A-S-T-E-R-Y.com. This episode was brought to you in part by the Compelled Podcast, which uses gripping, immersive storytelling to bring Christian testimonies to life. Listen to missionaries, addicts, martyrs, and more who have seen Jesus at work in unbelievable ways. Listen on your podcast app or compelledpodcast.com.